Hello, welcome to the ZMM podcast. My name is Hokyu. Thanks for joining us. Today I'll be speaking with author Lawrence Shainberg. Lawrence Shainberg began formal Zen practice in 1973, first at the Zen Study Center on Manhattan's Upper East Side, as well as its Catskills-based training center, Daibasatsu. Later, he became a close student of Kudo Nakagawa Roshi, who opened his own Soho Zendo in 1981. Kudo Roshi was an important figure, eventually succeeding Soan Nakagawa as abbot of Rutakuji, one of Rinzai Zen's most important temples. His low profile in the West was punctured by Shainberg's 1995 memoir, Ambivalent Zen, which became a sensation in spiritual circles for its honest and self-effacing depiction of modern lay practice. Shainberg, whose writing career includes both fiction, nonfiction, and magazine journalism, is a sympathetic and relatable guide through the challenges of working with a teacher from a very different culture, navigating the unique contours of the spiritual community, and struggling with the mind's slippery habits. His latest book is a follow-up to Ambivalent Zen, charting his own journey as a writer and practitioner, describing the events surrounding Kyudo Roshi's death in 2007, and reflecting on some unlikely friendships with famous colleagues. Larry Shainberg, welcome to the ZMM podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So, uh, Four Men Shaking is something of a follow-up to Ambivalent Zen, which was published in 1995 and became an instant classic in West meets East literature. The new book gives nearly equal attention to your teacher, Kudo Roshi, as well as to other people, Samuel Beckett and Norman Mailer, two legendary writers whom you befriended as mutual admirers. Um, it's such an interesting juxtaposition with these three very different characters and you as both the hub and the fourth man, as it were, of the title. How did you decide to frame the book this way? Well, it, it, I thought of it as an implicit, or rather than an explicit memoir, it, uh, and also as just a testament to how lucky I've been uh, in my life in general. I don't think I can, I can hardly imagine anyone in this world could be luckier than me. The hmm. Meetings with Beckett and Mailer, exactly at a moment when they were most open to meeting a younger writer and when they were most generous. And, hmm. uh, yeah. Of course, my meeting with Roshi was the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me, you know, and uh, it was an instant realization that he was my teacher. And then I stayed mm -hmm. with him uh, for 27 years. Um, but the the nature of you know, my, and Beckett had long been my deity as a writer, and uh, Mailer as a journalist had long, you know, been very important to me. The, the two of them were polar yeah. opposites. Uh, you can't imagine any two writers who would be different. Yeah. So I uh, I saw them as two aspects of my own mind, um, and uh, both of them were interested in Zen in their own way. Mailer, of course, mm. famously you know hated Zen and loved to challenge me on it, but he was a person who lived on argument. So his, the argument about Zen was pretty much the foundation of our relationship. <laughs> right, but he loved you. But he loved your book, so he loved reading about it. He loved reading about the struggle. But until the end of his life, he seemed to equate Buddhism um, and specifically the, the the notion of emptiness with nihilism. Despite your efforts to convince him otherwise, that's right. But but interestingly enough, you know, when I once quoted to him, uh, uh, Bernie Glassman, who was my first teacher, 
Uh, right. When Glassman, his definition of emptiness, which was the absence not of content, but of description. And when I quoted mm. that to Mailer, who was, of course, you know, you would understand as a person who lived on description, he was a brilliant at description, he was uh, found that definition arresting, and he lived with it the rest of his, the rest mm. of our discussions were often came back to it. And um, he was mm-hmm. so he was fascinated by that as a concept. Yes, he was. And if you yeah. uh, in the last in the last book that he did with Mike Lennon, which was conversations mm-hmm. about God, you will see that he talked about Buddhism in terms of the ineffable, which is the absence of you know, the indescribable. But uh, so Mailer was closer to Buddhism, I think, than he realized, and for and unfortunately closer than I realized when I was hmm. with him. You know. Hmm. You'd written in ambiv- in ambivalent Zen that Beckett operated from the premise that life is pervaded by suffering, but perhaps he refused to accept that any kind of liberation was possible. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. It would have yeah. anathema. It would be anathema to him to have accepted that, but mm. uh, he lived with that uh, sense of uh, uh, presence and w- lived with his connection with the work as being dealing with what he didn't know and going toward the not knowing of course as buddhists and as zen students we're very familiar with that and we know that that's where his work started that's where his great work started yeah and so did you talk uh, with him about zen and try to kind of elucidate for him how close he himself, I mean, a lot of people sort of put that on him. Yes. That, that there was a, uh, there was some sort of an echo. Yes. Um, or maybe a, a anticipation of Zen well, in yes, his it, philosophy. He was very curious about it. He often asked me about it, you know, what do we do in, 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 in Zen places, he said, in monetary. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, I said, we just look at the wall. And he said, what do you hope to gain by looking at the wall? Tranquility. And I said, no, uh, equanimity in its absence. Uh, and mm-hmm. he, he appreciated that as, if, as anybody who knows his work would know he did, appreciated it. But he would always ask me when we met if I was still looking at the wall. Now, uh, <laughs> um, early in the book, in the new book, you... Um, you latched on to the a concept of acceptance, which you first heard in a Dharma talk by Edo Shimano. Right. Um, when he was talking about acceptance of self and other is can be equated with a notion of salvation. Self, saving others is accepting them truly as they are. Yes. And um, you write that this concept uh, that the self and can be accepted and transcended if one can just let go of self-consciousness was it was a shock to your system and it took you years to absorb it it it's it is kind of something that uh i would say one doesn't encounter frequently in zen that kind of language but um but it seems to sort of be a, a an undercurrent to the themes that that run throughout the book where you're seeking to accept the the mind as it is yes well that was a, that was an yeah. important that was a, a pivotal teaching for me and i think uh i've never 
gotten over it, never completed it, never uh, exhausted it. But uh, the practice of acceptance uh, as with things exactly as they are, you as you are is to, to accept you as you are is to save you. To accept myself as I am is to save me. It's breaking through. We're all familiar with this, aren't we? With, uh, yeah. Acceptance being piercing dualism. But uh, it's mm, a practice. It is an, an, an endless practice for me, but it was an extremely important teaching. Yeah. You also mentioned the word grace, as in the grace of Zen. That's definitely not the way many people would characterize equanimity, you know, coming as it does with associations of an outside power, but it definitely is useful. It's, and I wonder if, if, um, if those two terms are related, um, uh, for you acceptance and, and sort of a, st a state of, of grace that, you know, we're kind of given this teaching that acceptance is possible. And is, is that the kind of grace that you're talking about being able to live within that? Well, uh, yes, I think they're pretty much synonymous for me. I uh, may that's it's just it all depends on your own ten, linguistic tendencies, I guess. But my mm. own is yes to equate those two. I I think of complete acceptance of yourself is a state of grace when you are able to accept yourself as you are. The Buddha said that the first mark of an enlightened being is the ability to be content. And content is contentment and acceptance are are the same to me. Um, yeah, and do you feel as though um, Beck, both Beckett and Mailer, did they reach some kind of accept? I mean, they, you know, Mailer seemed supremely comfortable with himself, but you know, he 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 suffered in the end, like everyone does, who's fortunate enough, I suppose, to, to reach old age with physical ailments, with frustrations, yes. with his working habits having to change. Um, and, you know, and Beckett had sort of was going through some of the same things in, in a way, you know, grappling with the way that his, his mind worked or worked differently than it did, or the fact yes. that he wasn't reaching conclusions he hoped to. What, what did you, or, or what do you feel now that, what would you have wished for both of them? Is it, related to the notion of of grace kind of a, a radical acceptance to borrow that term because um, they were your, you know they were your friends and you write very affectionately about them and and um, and about their you know their own uh, uh, sort of philosophical and and very real physical uh, I don't know I, sp I suppose states of being you know, towards the end. Well, they were they were remarkable guys, both of them, and I met them yeah. at the at the at the best time in their life. They were both uh, in their late seventies when I met them, and uh, mm. each they both died around the mid in their mid eighties. Uh, mm -hmm. Both of them remarkably were uh, were very graceful about their age. Um, of course, Beckett, mm. as you would expect, was very eloquent about it, and. Uh, I've quoted him in the book as saying, you know, that old age was, you remember, that, that was the first night that I had a conversation with him. I just, mm. he said, I always thought old age would be a writer's best chance. He said, <laughs> but now, he said, my old memory's gone, all the old fluency's gone. He said, I don't write a single sentence without saying to myself, it's a lie. So I know I was right. It's the best chance I've ever had. 
And mm. that, that sense, the sense of struggling with his limitations was his theme, you know, his theme and all mm -hmm. through all his adult life. Um, he had early on said that he, his work was about exploiting impotence. And he said, mm. I don't believe in impotence. He said, Joyce, somebody like, he said, Joyce, the more he knew, the more he could. He said, uh, mm -hmm. for me, it's what I, where my don't know that I begin, where I don't understand where, I, he said, then that's where, what he called his impotence. Mm -hmm. And um, a, and Mailer, as you would expect, I mean, Mailer was quite the opposite. Mailer was a person of, who thrived on his virility and did everything to yes. defeat it. Early in his life, he had been, uh, you know, aggressive and uh, extremely uh, acrimonious with people. They'd been very difficult, mm. you know, as we know, famously. But as he got older, yes, this same uh, quality served him in a different way. And uh, he was fairly, uh, you know, graceful about his old age, you know, um, I once quoted to him uh, Philip Roth's comment that old age is a massacre. And, yes, uh, it's, that's a great yeah, point. And uh, uh, Mailer disagreed. He said he really didn't think it was that disagreeable. Um, and uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, you know, the great thing about he said it's great to be able to go into a bar and without having to square your shoulders. <laughs> and he also, and he, and he said that the the greatest thing about old age was he was became become such a great editor, a much better editor of himself because what he wrote one day when he looked at it the next day he couldn't remember having written it. <laughs> <laughs> so both of them, both of them were fairly. I thought greeted old age with a lot of courage and equanimity. Hmm. Um, Kuda Roshi passed away, I think, at 79, yeah. and quite suddenly. Yes, yes, he did. He was, he was just found in his uh, room at the monastery, was found dead, and uh, with internal bleeding. And mm. uh, we've never, at least I've never been able to find out what he died from. Uh, mm. Do you think he had a premonition of his passing? He He made some arrangements for the the eventuality or was it just approaching 80 that he started thinking about uh thinking about that well uh, you know a guy like him zen master i mean a true zen master he had that premonition every time he sat he, mm, he was dealing right. with it he used to mm. say to us make sure to feed my body to the fishes uh, <laughs> and uh, he mm. was you know he, he was a realized master in my completely yeah. and so of course, uh, there was that premonition, but but it's true that as he got as he reached this age that I've talked about in the book, they, the 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 thirteen hour trip from uh, from Japan was really hard on him, and um, mm. that plus the fact that you know the our, our sangha had both getting smaller, you know, it was a lot to keep the zendo going, so he was ready to give it up. Mm, I see. It's fascinating. He spent 30 years outside of Japan, first in, in Tel Aviv, um, with a Zen center there, and then moving to New York. But he still was so respected back home that um, when Soenakagawa passed away, he was the one who was tapped to come back and and lead the place as abbot. No, he was, he was, he, yeah. there was an abbot in between Soshu, Soshu oh, Roshi. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. but in between it was his, uh, but his older brother monk. They had both they had been in together at the monastery for years. Both of them resident monks, and it was natural that after Sochi when Sochi died that they would go after Kudo. And, mm. um, Kudo was as I wrote very happy in New York, very much settled there. It was hard for him to give it up, uh, and as I wrote. Uh, it was the only time I saw him ambivalent in the whole time, in the, all the time I knew him, but because uh, mm -hmm. he loved the Zendo, he loved our, he loved us, loved our history, mm -hmm. he loved walking in the village and in, in Chinatown, but uh, yeah. he his responsibility was to the lineage, and uh, right. for, to to Soen Roshi especially. Soen was Soen was his teacher. Uh huh. Right. What what had he thought of ambivalent Zen when it came out? You know, he never he never said anything to me about it. <laughs> he, he did he did I, I I think he read it, but but he never he never responded to it. He wasn't he wasn't angry at me. I know that. So uh, okay. so that I I took that as a plus. But uh, <laughs> you know, he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to sit down and read a book anyway. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So how have you approached your practice since Kudo Roshi passed away? Well, uh, Kudo Roshi remains my teacher. I mean, I, I yes. am, I've never gotten finished. I've never gotten finished with him. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I go, I, I do still value Sashin a lot. I need Sashin. And mm -hmm. um, I do it at, uh, at both Daibosatsu Zendo, which is more the lineage that Kudo was in. Was in mm -hmm. oh, I mean, it's Edo Roshi. Mm -hmm. Soen Roshi, that's my lineage, but I love to come to Zen Mountain Monastery. I love to have the, you know, the, the, the it's just incredible gift of meeting up with Shugen Roshi again. So um, I'm about to come to Seshin there next week. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's right. We're looking forward to, to seeing you. Um, and looking forward to seeing you in the fall when you'll be at uh, Fire Lotus Temple right. offering a reading. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Very much. Yeah. Look, yeah. Looking forward to yeah. that. Wonderful to read there, too. I love that. I love the energy in that place. Yeah. So that's October 5th. For people who are listening here in 2019, this talk will be archived, but that'll that's October 5th, 2019 at 6.30 p.m. at the Zen Center of New York City. And you can visit zmm.org slash zcnyc for more details. You know, it's interesting. I mean, these three pe people who are among the most significant in uh, in your life, especially from that time period, um, it the book really communicates something subtly about the way that we're that we're influenced um, by different people in our lives. I mean, Kudo Roshi, obviously. Um, but also you write at some point that, you know, you were very much inspired by Beckett and the combination of Zen and Beckett, you write, was leading me into the ultimate cul-de-sac of a passion for cul-de-sac itself, yes, yes. which is kind of like getting into a corner that you can't get yourself out of. Well, it's fair to call it Beckettian, isn't it? Um, I think he would have appreciated that line anyway. I don't know if he appreciated too much about my work, but he did appreciate that line. Uh, he would have anyway. But yeah, it's, mm. you know, I was, as I said in the beginning, I was just amazingly lucky uh, these uh, to have these people who were so important to me 
to make this direct contact with him, you know. And uh, Beckett, of course, from the moment I read Malloy, uh, when I was in my mm, 20s, great book. Uh, yeah. it's a great book, and it's, to me, the funniest novel in the English language. It's the funniest one I know. And um, from that moment on, I just he had been my deity. And I think he, his closeness to the Zen, to the Zen view, opened me a lot to the practice and had a lot to do with, uh, incur with in getting me on the cushion and giving me the courage to stay there. Interesting. Yeah. I very, yeah. very much. Thank you. I appreciate your noticing it. Yeah. What, um, another theme of the book is you're equating uh, restless mind or the reactivity of, of the mind to um, states of common equanimity with brain damage. It's a it's a a way of looking at it that you have since disavowed, and it's sort of it, the 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 book for men shaking sort of charts your your journey from um, from thinking about it that way to with the help of your teacher to you know thinking about it as not an, an aberration per se, but something that you can that you can rest into as it were. I don't know if that... Acceptance again. It's acceptance. Acceptance. Yes, uh, well, mm -hmm. uh, that's the last line of the book, the last exchange with Kudo Roshi, and um, he, yeah. uh, it's I, what drove me to write the book, because to me it was the ultimate the teaching that I ever have received. But, um, yeah, I, I did think of the uh, Zen practice for a long time as dealing with brain damage, and I'm I think that's mm. an unfortunate choice of words. Yeah. Well, why did you choose that way of looking at it rather than the more common Buddhist diagnosis of conditioning or karmic formations? But where do conditioning and formations, where do they originate? Where are they? I mean, I don't think, I don't see how anyone can argue with it when we're sitting and following our breath that we're dealing with the brain. The brain is firing. You know, yeah. uh, neurons are firing constantly. You know there are once there are more synapses in the brain. Someone, many people have said that more synapses in the brain than there are stars in the universe. Mm. So those uh, they're not inactive, and when we sit and follow our breath, they are firing. Right. They are firing, and how we deal with them, what we are, the way the the mind brain issue, if you like. Yeah. Is to me, what the what what the practice is about. Um, well, anyone who's ever had that observation while sitting on on the cushion that, you know, they've started to imagine what exactly is firing and misfiring, and if only they could, you know, get a handle on that, then maybe they would sit better. I I think anyone who's thought about it that way, which is me and maybe most of us, will really enjoy this book because. It um, it reflects almost a, a lifetime interest that you have had in neurology and neuroscience. Yes, and it continues. And, yes, and it continues, and um, and it is a a growing field of people approaching uh, meditation and the effects of meditation from a neurological point of view. And you write about that in the book as well. But I think that this is that that you have a unique take on it and um and especially with your with the research that you did writing a whole book about a prominent neurosurgeon um 
it 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 really it, you kind of build the case for brain for for quote unquote brain damage and then you dismantle it over the course of the I book. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, Larry, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you about the new book. And um, it's always great to see you when you visit uh, here at Zen Mountain Monastery. Thank you, Okyu. <laughs> it's, I appreciate your questions. I appreciate the dialogue. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for listening to the ZMM podcast. For more talks, interviews, and special events, visit zmm.org media or... You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.